From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Malcolm Gladwell's books have opened up new ways to consider human behavior, introducing concepts like the tipping point, stickiness, and the 10,000-hour rule. His newest New York Times bestseller asks why we're so bad at understanding people we don't know. It's called Talking to Strangers. Hello, stranger. Gladwell normally fetches six-figure speaking fees. His TED Talks have been viewed tens of millions of times. So I was delighted to be invited by Acapella Books to speak with him on stage. With that, we present a conversation with Malcolm Gladwell, recorded live at the First Center for the Arts at Georgia Tech. The venue is just blocks from where the Pickwick restaurant once stood. The proprietor, Lester Maddox, was a vehement segregationist and later governor of Georgia and was featured in Gladwell's Revisionist History podcast. I wanted to know more about Gladwell's process of finding little-known stories to flesh out his ideas, so we began with a clip from the episode called Good Old Boys, with Maddox refusing to admit civil rights protesters to the Pickrick. There's Maddox in front of the Pickrick with his black suit and bald head, protesters shouting, cameras all around. He's in heaven. I'll use axe handles, I'll use guns, I'll use paint, I'll use my fists, I'll use my customers, I'll use my employees, I'll use anything at my disposal. This property belongs to me, my wife, and my children. It doesn't belong to anybody else. I'll throw out a white one or a black one or a red-headed one or a bald-headed one. It doesn't make any difference. So we get Maddox, The Dick Cavett Show, even Truman Capote shows up in this episode about a Randy Newman album that could not have been made today. I asked Malcolm Gladwell how he pulled all these together when we were on stage at the First Center. That one was uh, not difficult because all of those connections are in the Randy Newman song. So Randy Newman wrote a song um, that's on his Good Old Boys album. Um, and it was inspired by a appearance that Lester Maddox made on the Dick Cavett show. So this song it contained all those. So in that case, the the particular job of putting together disparate pieces was not that difficult. What, what's a more complicated example of a revisionist history episode? Well, the one with uh, Taco Bell and Pat Boone, for example. <laughs> that one... That one, I mean, there's, I'm aware, I'm, very, I'm quite self-conscious about the fact that it is my storytelling style to bring together disparate narratives. And in the podcast, I have, an, I have the opportunity to parody myself. And so a podcast episode which suggests, more than suggests, argues vehemently that there is a strong parallel between Pat Boone and Taco Bell um, is self-parody. Right, it's me making fun of a Malcolm Gladwell story. Um, it happens to be the case, however, that at the end of that exercise, I had convinced myself that it wasn't self-parody at all, but vintage Gladwell. <laughs> <laughs> Do you all know that episode? This is he is making the case to induct Pat Boone into the heavy metal hall. No, of no, fame. no, no, the rock and roll oh, I'm hall. I'm so of fame. sorry. No, uh, I was defending. So Pat Boone, incredibly not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. When I heard that fact, I was both stunned and shocked and realized that if, that if I was not going to come to his aid, who would? <laughs> um, and then I, and the reason he's not in the Hall of Fame is that, of course, he made his name in the 50s doing incredibly lame white covers of R&B songs. 
And people consider him a cultural appropriator. And my argument was, he's not a cultural appropriator because you're a cultural appropriator if you do a good job of appropriating. <laughs> Elvis is a cultural appropriator because if you listen to Elvis, if you listen to his version, you don't listen to the real version. But Pat Boone is so lame that he drives you to the real... I mean, you hear his Tutti Frutti and you're like, somewhere in there, there's a good song. This is not that thing. I gotta find the little Richard version. And what is this like? It's like Taco Bell, right? Taco Bell drives you to the real thing. That's what it does. So, see now, they're ch you're clapping because that's not Malcolm Parody. That's, you've, you're convinced that's vintage, Malcolm. Well, you tell these stories about, with very original angles, largely unknown stories, most of the time in your podcasts, and you've also told them a lot in your books, but this book is different. Talking to Strangers is much bigger, high-stakes, well-known news stories. And I have a question here about how you put that together, yeah. because this is from Shraddha. She is a law student at Emory. So when you decide to dissect an issue in your books or on your podcast, do your ideas start with a broad concept going in, or do you find inspiration from noticing patterns? You know, all creativity begins in desperation. You've agreed to write a book before you know whether you have a book's worth of material. It's not like you finish the book and then you give it to them. No, they ask for the book. And then you have to go ahead. And with the podcast, for some, I was saying to you backstage, I don't know why, but I committed to doing 10 episodes a year. In retrospect, crazy decision. We didn't have to do 10. I could have said it seven. Everyone would have been happy. But I said 10. It seemed like a round number, nice round number. So then every January, I get this sinking feeling. <laughs> and I realize I need 10 episodes. And typically what happens is I have like six. And then if you notice, if you're a listener of Resurgence History, you'll notice there are many, I do these kind of three-part three yeah. things. Well... That's because I have six. And I think, I gotta get to 10. So I start chopping them up. <laughs> How has audio changed the way that you tell stories? Because I, as somebody who's been working in radio for a very long time, I'm really gratified by the fact that you, you seem to fully embrace audio. I love audio. Yeah. Many ways, many things about audio. Um, one is that, you know, uh, this is, I'm quoting my neighbor and very good friend Charles Randolph who always says we think with our eyes and we feel with our ears um, audio is an emotion engine right yeah and um, my this little digression I am um, I have always been uh, obsessed with making people cry uh, because from the very from very earliest ages um, very young age I was aware of the fact that it was super easy to make your parents laugh. It's just not hard, right? You're a five-year-old. They're going to laugh. They're primed to laugh. But, so that struck me as being like not a challenge. But making them cry seemed to me like a really, that seemed to me like a worthy goal of a five-year-old. And so I've always, and it, the weird thing, of course, in society is that we venerate people who make us laugh, even though, like I said, it's just not that hard. The comedians are on a pedestal. Why? It's just, 
this kind of notion that it's incredibly difficult to be a comedian seems to me like just not true. It's like, you're all laughing now. I'm not even trying. But making someone cry is like an epic accomplishment, right? So every season of revisionist history, I have at least one episode that is just supposed to make you cry, right? And um, those are always the most meaningful episodes for me. So, you know, this book begins with the story of Sandra Bland. You can read it on the page, and it's very moving. When you hear her voice, it gets you. She's one of those high-profile cases uh, from a couple years ago of African-American encounters with law enforcement, and she's the woman in Texas who's pulled over by the side of the road by a white cop. They get into a kind of altercation. He drags her out of the car, arrests her, and then she hangs herself three days later in her cell. And the reason the cop pulls her over is nonsense. It's like she didn't use her turning signal. It's a completely, the whole thing is just preposterous and heartbreaking and senseless and stupid. And before this happened, she, had, she was in the habit of posting these essays on YouTube, these video essays, and she would hold forth on something. They always began, good morning, my beautiful kings and queens. Hopefully you are out there or were out there this morning doing something productive, successful, something that is going to help establish your kingdom and queendom. Today, Sandy Speaks is going to focus directly on my white people. White people. Yes, black people know that all lives matter. But what I need you guys to understand is that being a black person in America is very, very hard. Although you all love to say, oh, nobody should see race. People are the reason that racism is still alive. Well, what kind of people are the reason? Black racists have no power, whereas white racists do. And you realize that when you hear them, that she was this beautiful, sophisticated, um, sensitive, interesting person who cared deeply about things that were going on in the world and about, had thought about race and thought about... And so it just adds a dimension to the tragedy of her death that you wouldn't get if you didn't know that. And when you can hear her voice, you get a sense of her character in a way that you can't on the page. Um, so like when you hear that in the audiobook, it's like you, a kick in the stomach. You're listening to best-selling author and podcaster Malcolm Gladwell talking about his new book, Talking to Strangers. Our conversation was recorded live at the First Center for the Arts at an event for Acapella Books. I'm Virginia Prescott with On Second Thought. We actually have a clip. Let's hear it. Don't touch me. I'm not under arrest. You don't have the right to say You are under arrest. I'm under arrest for what? 2547 County FM 1098. Just for what? 290. Send me another unit. Get out of the car. Get out of the car. Out of the car now. Why am I being apprehended? You're trying to give me a ticket. I said, for your get failure? out of the car. Why am I being apprehended? You I'm giving you a lawful order. You I'm going to drag you out of here. So you're going you to drag me out of my own car. Get out of the car. And then you I will light me? you up. Get out. Wow. Now. Wow. It just doesn't get easier to listen to that, does yeah. it? No, it's. This is for. He drives up really fast behind her. She moves over to get out of his way. And because she's in a hurry to get out of his way, doesn't use her turning signal. Yeah. And so he pulls her over for failure to use a turning signal. That's, and three days later, she's dead. And that, that, he's screaming at her, get out of the car, because she lights the a cigarette. cigarette yeah. To calm herself down and to, I think, to unconsciously signal to him 
that she wanted to de-escalate things. You know, people, we forget this because we don't smoke anymore. People smoked, smoke to calm their nerves. And he takes it as a challenge to his authority. And that's what you heard was the escalation from that moment. You also point out in the book that, and we know this, right, that people uh, either read this incident in a string of so many other incidents as just outright racism, or they read it as this cop felt threatened. This was an agitated person that he'd pulled over. But you look at it, how we misread strangers. So what does that add to our understanding of those other interpretations? Many people share this frustration, which is that uh, in our explanations of encounters, particularly where there's a strong racial component, the racial narrative, which is, oh, the cop is, cop doesn't like black people, is a way of, ex- not of excusing, but of, of dismissing the case. It's a way of saying, oh, this is just about a racist cop. What are you going to do? And we just go on and it happens again. And then we say, oh, racist cop, what are you going to do? So long as you insist on interpreting these kinds of events is as evidence of a personal failing on the part of, or of evidence of some kind of blackness in the heart of, um, evil in the heart of one of the protagonists, then you have a, an excuse for not thinking about it in a more considered and, in, and structural way. The crucial fact about the Sandra Bland case is that the, police officer who pulls her over is not a rogue cop. He's not, a, he's not doing something in contradiction or violation of law enforcement training. It is the opposite. He is behaving precisely as he was trained to behave. That, once you realize that, it's a profoundly sobering moment in our understanding of these kinds of incidents. What if these incidents are not happening because, because of there's bad apples on police forces, but rather happening because as a, as a systematic and deliberate outcome of the way in which we are instructing police officers to behave. Well, this is a policing policy that you trace back uh, the roots of it to the 1970s in Kansas City. And it's the idea of doing discretionary stops. And, you know, you look at the data, 400,000 additional stops in North Carolina highways 17 guns apprehended. And they're, they're looking for guns, basically. So what is the rationale behind that policy? The notion that it is a misapplication of police authority. So it is absolutely the case that proactive, aggressive policing is essential in those parts of any community that are deeply, um, are suffering under the weight of uh, high endemic crime rates, right? Um, those tactics are not appropriate anywhere else. And as I talk about in the chapter, in one of the chapters of the book, when you look very closely at the distribution of crime in urban areas, what you discover is that the overwhelming amount of crime in an urban area happens on a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of the city streets. So we're, the rule of thumb is uh, le- uh, less than 5% of the street segments, so half a block, of in any urban area account for over 50% of the crime. So in that part of the book, one of the, I, I say that the prob, that make the argument that the problem with the Sandra Bland stop does not begin with the stop. It begins with the theory that, with the very idea that a police officer should be pulling over somebody 
for no particular reason in the middle of the day in a sleepy Texas town where there is no crime. There were these, there's these two criminologists um, who have been for some time now pushing this idea that crime is incredibly localized geographically and that suggests that police activity ought to be confined to those hotspots. And I remember going through the details of the Sandra Bland case with these two guys and they literally put their head in their hands and they, their first thing out of their mouth was, what's he doing stopping her on that street at that time of day? Right? It just, it's just asking for trouble. Um, but that's what I mean about like, you've got to get beyond this very kind of reductive thing about, oh, the rogue cop, rogue racist cop. And you've got to say, no, 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 wait a minute. This is about philosophies of policing that are flawed. And that implicates all of us. Malcolm Gladwell there on the tragic results of misreading people we don't know. One of the through lines of his new best-selling book, Talking to Strangers. After a short break, we're going to hear about pathetic spies, misguided tech, and why being easily fooled is actually an advantage to humans. I'm Virginia Prescott, back with Malcolm Gladwell, recorded live in conversation. This is On Second Thought. People are strange when you're a stranger. Faces look ugly when you're alone. Women seem wicked. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today, a conversation with Malcolm Gladwell recorded live at the First Center for the Arts at Georgia Tech. As Gladwell's popularity as a provocateur and his book sales and publishing advances have grown, so has the zeal of his critics. They've torn apart his theories and accused him of cherry picking the science that they're based on. One public dispute over Gladwell's 10,000 hours rule ignited what one magazine writer called a nerd fight of gladiatorial proportions. Others accused Gladwell, who made his name as a Washington Post reporter, of crossing over the line to activism. Let's get back to my conversation with Gladwell about his latest best-selling book, Talking to Strangers, recorded live at Georgia Tech. So you're a journalist. You talk to strangers all the time. Yeah. So do you feel like you can size them up by sitting with them and talking with them? No, this is actually the thing that, um, one of the reasons I wanted to write this book was, one of the things that's always annoyed me about my profession is um, the kind of conviction and extraordinary confidence that members of my profession have that they can, quote, do a profile of someone and give you a real sense of who they are. I really got to the, I spent two hours with Brad Pitt and I feel I really got to the, core of who Brad Pitt is. No, you didn't. You didn't get to the core of Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt can pretty effectively fend off a journalist for two hours, right? He shows you exactly what he wanted to show you, which probably has zero to do with who he really is. And, and yet we journalists, and I, we continue to kind of engage in this absurd... I once... Um, I remember this because I once years ago, I was invited to speak at a journalism conference and it was devoted to the art of the profile. And so I tried out this theory. I got up and I gave a speech about how you can't do it. I mean, if we were honest, we wouldn't be having this conference because there is no art to the profile. You can't do the profile. And then, because you can't get to the truth of anybody in the amount of time we have. And then someone asked the question, well, don't, what about therapy? I was like, exactly. Therapists take five years if they can, twice a week for an hour. And even then, like, they, one of the reasons that they get to the bottom of you is they make an explicit promise not to write about their findings in major media outlets. So, 
<laughs> the idea that, another, that a journalist would say, well, what about therapy? You don't believe in therapy? As if they were engaged in a version of therapy. I wanted to say, have you never been in therapy? Like... Still, for some reason, this is years ago, I'm still worked up about it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I thought about this when I watched Theresa May's resignation. Mm-hmm. You know, she cried. That she could not allow herself to be human in a position of power, right? You make the point, like Amanda Knox could not run for office. But aren't we, on some level, projecting a different version of the outside than is what is on the inside anyway? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's part of the project of, of being human is to, like, is to understand when emotional displays are appropriate or inappropriate. Um, particularly now when, you know, when, when the kind of demands on our privacy are so overwhelming. I think we do, we even more have, have even more kind of motivation to, um, to put up screens. And that makes the task of making sense of a stranger even harder. I mean, people are very, to use therapy speak, um, people are very well defended these days, um, appropriately so. Um, and that, you know, when you understand just how difficult it is under those situations to make sense of someone you don't know, then I think you have to adjust your own behavior accordingly. And that's sort of what I'm trying to get at in this book, that let's abandon this absurd notion that human beings are these are transparent and, um, uh, and easy to read. Like watching Friends. There's a, there's a whole bit in the book about watching Friends with the sound off and trying to understand what's going on. And we have these ideas that when someone is surprised, they'll go, or, yeah. you know, make those kind of faces. Yeah, I had a lot of fun with, uh, with friends. Um, the, the genesis of that was I was trying once to explain the plot of a Friends episode. Hey, Ross, what's up, bro? <laughs> what the hell are you doing? Hey, what's, what's going on? Well, I think, I think Ross knows about me and Monica... Right there. And I realized that, like, it's easier to explain the plot of War and Peace. It so much happens, it's unbelievable. And then, but then this is the great puzzle that even though the plots are just in so convoluted that you need a flow chart, really, to kind of explain, no one has ever said after watching a Friends episode, they lost me. <laughs> no, I. That thing with Monica just went right over my head. No. So how is it that a show with the most complicated plots of all time can be simultaneously so completely kind of legible? I'm Virginia Prescott, and you're listening to my conversation with Malcolm Gladwell at the First Center for the Arts. The live event was sponsored by Acapella Books and recorded by GPB for On Second Thought. Question from the audience here. Has any of your research resulted in a paradigm shift in your thinking as it relates to human nature? I mean, I would hope so. I mean, imagine the, that question reverse. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know... Uh, so one of the things that attracts me to the ideas I'm pursuing is that I really like the opportunity to change my mind about things. I, feel that, I find that kind of exhilarating. Um, I also find exhilarating finding out that something that I thought was boring is actually interesting. Um, that's, to me, the coolest of all 
responses to the world. You know, I have that kind of riff on um, Neville Chamberlain mm-hmm. and his approach to Hitler and his meeting with Hitler and how after meeting Hitler, he comes away profoundly um, misled. In the course of doing that, I, you know, realized and discovered that all the people who got Hitler right were the ones who never met him. Mm-hmm. And all the ones who met him were the ones who got him wrong, which is super interesting. You know, Churchill, FDR, and Stalin never met Hitler. Um, they were the ones most resolute and convinced of his evil. Neville Chamberlain and the Canadian Prime Minister, William Lyon Mackenzie King, both met him, and they were the ones most convinced that he was a good guy, mm-hmm. um, a man of his word. And in case of the Canadian, I hate to say something nasty about a Canadian Prime Minister as a Canadian, but I have to come clean. William Lyon Mackenzie King went saw Hitler in like 36 or 37 and was blown away by him. And by the way, because Hitler was a super charismatic guy, right? I mean, that's part of the, his appeal. And that part of the reason why um, people like that are so dangerous is that you have high expectations for understanding them upon meeting them. And in fact, all you're doing in meeting them is you are falling victim to their deceptions, right? They're, they're casting a spell on you. Um, I actually don't, as a general rule, I become very... Um, I'm more and more convinced that meeting people is overrated. <laughs> and... I don't understand. Like, so I'm sort of obsessed with job interviews. I don't understand why job interviews are face-to-face. I just don't really... This, so, someone needs to explain to me why this is true. Why do you need to meet the person? Now, apart from... Okay, if they're going to be selling perfume on the floor of Saks, okay, you got to meet them. They got to be presentable. They need to... But let's bracket selling perfume on the floor of Saks. <laughs> For virtually every other job, what is gained from meeting the person face-to-face? Why, why don't you just do it on email? I want to get into some audience questions here. I was moved by your episode on Brian Williams and the fallibility of memory. Do you remember yeah. Free Brian Williams? Anyone out there? Can we hear it for Free Brian Williams? I'm also very moved by the Me Too movement and the motivation to believe all women. I started thinking of this around the Kavanaugh hearings and wonder how you square these two things. Yeah. So I did a podcast episode uh, called Free Brian Williams, um, in def- coming in defense of Brian Williams over, uh, remember he tells that story about being shot down by a, uh, a rocket during the Iraq war, and it was not true. Um, and I sort of said, well, you know, everything we know about memory suggests that it's, our memories are not these kinds of perfect vessels that we think they are. Um, they're not videotapes inside of our head. And what he his faulty memory can very easily fall into the uh, common, innocent um, memory fabrication of the sort that all of us do all the time. Um, And so I asked us to be a little bit more compassionate towards Brian Williams. Um, By the way, he never... I devoted an entire episode (laughs) saying how he was wrongfully... Did I hear from Brian Williams? (laughs) Did I even get, like, a box of chocolates in the mail? No, No. No chocolates, still waiting for my chocolates. Why not? Even an anonymous, like, anyway. Um, but this is a serious question about, uh, about the Me Too movement. Yeah, about the fallibility of yeah. memory. And, you know, there's a whole chapter in the book about 
alcohol and how that completely, you know, hijacks your hippocampus and changes the way. So that's, I know you all have the book, so you can read that, but go ahead. uh, It's absolutely relevant. And I will bring up a comment that I went to see Ronan Farrow uh, interview Rose McGowan, Mm -hmm. talking about the, the, the two of them, their work on, in the Harvey Weinstein case. And Ronan Farrow addresses this very question. And he said um, uh, that, the, that the appropriate response is not to believe the women, but to take their stories seriously and then investigate and confirm them. So he said the role of, he was talking about how the role of the, in his case, the journalist, but the investigator in general, is crucial here. That we must understand that Memories are fallible things. And so what do we do? We then go and we gather additional evidence and we confirm those parts of the story that can be confirmed. And it's on that basis that we can bring successful actions against predators like Harvey Weinstein. Mm -hmm. And he was very adamant on this point and I thought he was absolutely right. And so in the Kavanaugh hearings, the issue is not, um, you know, it would not have been sufficient for somebody just to raise their hand and said, that guy uh, abused me 30 years ago. The, that story requires some form of confirmation. And that is what she brought to the table, right? She found people who she had told years ago about this particular, she had, you know, therapy records, she had. So it, that's the taking memory seriously and the fallibility of memory seriously means that when we want to make a claim based on memory, we have to bring um, corroborating evidence. That is a, um, and that is what I think, I believe, that in that case, that is what happened. Mm-hmm. And that's why I took the allegation against Kavanaugh seriously. Um, it, is, it is hard to know what to do with cases where there isn't corroborating evidence. It does not mean the memory claim is false in that case, but memory, what we know about memory is, is, uh, suggests that it requires some degree of corroboration for us to proceed on the basis of that. I mean, that's, again, that's why Ronan Farrow, uh, his role in the Weinstein case was so crucial, because he provided that corroborating evidence. I would also point out that, you know, with respect to the he who shall not be named, you know, when you get to 43 women who have come forward and said that he engaged in less than savory behavior in their presence... Um, I'm, inclined to believe, to, I'm inclined to believe that 43 people is corroborating evidence, right? Um, well, the Kavanaugh case is one of these cases of uh, it, what's going on in America now. You know, retreating to our corners. It's almost a cliche to say a nation divided, but people with their own sort of socioeconomic bubbles or political bubbles, even their own sense of reality, I think, in many, many cases. Yeah. So, I never, can I just make one point as a Canadian yes. about the Kavanaugh hearings? I don't understand. There's always this assumption when you guys, it's you guys, when you guys go through this ritual, this weird ritual, but there's so many weird things about it. Why are they on the court for life? That's, I've never understood that. Like, why don't you just make it five years or something or 10 years? But anyway, there's always, this, there's always a moment in the hearings where everyone is convinced that if we don't confirm this person, I don't know who we're going to get. <laughs> Like, it comes down to it's like this person or I, we're, we're only going to have eight people on the court. Like, it's not like there aren't at least a thousand people who are qualified. More, probably more, probably 5,000 
There's not a shortage of smart lawyers in this country. If anything, there's too many smart lawyers in this country. There's tons of them. Many of them will be good. If one person doesn't measure up, I don't know, just find somebody else. It's not that hard, right? You should have like a long list. We think we know you. I think a lot of people here in this audience, I think you will probably read this book in Malcolm Gladwell's voice. If you've listened to enough revisionist history podcasts, maybe at one and a half speed, maybe at just one. Well, how do you think you read to other people? Well, I'm, you know, I'm skinny and short, <laughs> and I, uh, I have a high forehead, um, which makes me feel sort of, I don't think I'm very... My point is, I don't think I'm very threatening, <laughs> right? I think it's easy not to take me too seriously as a result of my um, lack of kind of heft. Uh, I am, I, I'm Canadian. That also undercuts things still further. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, I don't go out of my way to be um, intimidating, not threatening, but there's a question here, like, why, why do critics hate on you so much? I mean, you are kind of the Shia LaBeouf of, of or the Taylor Swift of... I love that. First of all, it's not really clear that people hate on me. I have my share of critics, as one does, but, um, but the number of critics you have is just a linear function of the number of readers you have, right? So if you have lots of readers, you have lots of, if I didn't have any, like if, if we suppose that 80% of people who read something like it and 20% don't. So if you have 10 readers, you have eight people who like you and two who don't, right? Whatever. If you have a hundred thousand readers, 20,000 people don't like you. That's a lot. <laughs> I, I grew up in a town of 5,000. So that means four hometowns <laughs> full of people who are going online saying nasty things about me. So, you know, that's how I choose to think about it. All right, so I'm going to go back to that last point, the idea that we don't get other human beings right. I was telling you earlier, uh, there's a body, body language expert here in Atlanta. Her name is Patty Wood, and she said, you know, she, she actually trained people for the TSA to detect people who might be suspicious. And she said, basically, it's, it's a toss-up. It's 50%. Is that, what, is that what we come to at the end of this book, that it's a great social benefit to trust people? The threshold for not trusting people would make us all miserable. Is it just a toss-up? I think that the, the, the fundamentally human response of being a trusting engine and believing people implicitly until you're given overwhelming evidence otherwise is the correct response. And that accepting the possibility as a result of occasional deception is part of, that's just the small price we pay for being human. Malcolm Gladwell there on tour for his new book, Talking to Strangers. For a link to share our conversation, go to gpbnews.org. Our thanks to On Second Thought producers Priya Mahadevan, Amelia Brock, and LaRaven Taylor. To engineer Jesse Neiswanger, senior producer Amy Kiley, and GPB's vice president of news, Mary Lynn Ryan. Special thanks today to Allison Hashimoto. We're grateful to Rachel Haig and the staff at the First Center for the Arts at Georgia Tech, and to Frank Reese and Allison Law at Acapella Books. For 
our collection of Stranger songs, we used Hello Stranger from Barbara Lewis, the Stranger Things theme by Kyle Dixon and Michael Stein, Backstabbers by the OJs, People Are Strange by The Doors, Amy Winehouse's version of Don't Go to Strangers, and now Lemonade by Gucci Mane, who is, by the way, a big Malcolm Gladwell fan. He tweeted a picture of himself with a copy of Gladwell's book, David and Goliath. Gladwell responded, Ladies and gentlemen, this might be the greatest thing that has ever happened to me. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for listening, and don't be a stranger. What they do, they smile in your face. It's On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott, back with Malcolm Gladwell, recorded live at the First Center for the Arts at Georgia Tech. Gladwell's best-selling books and revisionist history podcast mine overlooked stories, eccentric characters, behavioral science, and his particularly contrarian approach to conventional wisdom. His newest book is comparatively dark. Talking to Strangers looks at police shootings, campus rape, suicide, sexual assault of children, and other incendiary issues through the prism of our instinct to trust others with often tragic results. But as we heard before the break, Gladwell is not a somber guy. He's possessed of an agile, inquisitive mind, and he loves a good spy story. There are lots of them in this book that illustrate how often we get others wrong. One is about the discovery that dozens of Cuban double agents were operating for decades within U.S. intelligence agencies. That's despite frequent polygraphs and some flaming red flags. Gladwell says it's not because they were brilliant spies. In fact, some were downright sloppy but that there is something wrong with us. What, I asked, why are we so often fooled? Yeah, this sort of gets into the major argument of the book, why are human beings so bad at detecting lies? Because we're terrible at it. If I, if I lined up 100 people, come across the stage, and each one of those people said something that was either true or false, um, and asked you to pick the liars, you as a group would pick 52 to 4% of the liars accurately. Um, and that is not because you are in some way deficient. It's everyone would. I would, you would, FBI agents would. Um, we get these cases, and I talk about all these spy cases, and the spies are super lame. Spies tend to be super lame. Like, the notion you get from Bond movies that the spy is a kind of evil genius is just nonsense. Like, one of the spies in my book, this woman, Anna Montes, when they bust Anna Montes, when they finally figure out that she has for 10 years even though she's at the top of the American intelligence establishment, for 10 years, she has been, every night, she has been sending every secret she learned to her handlers in Havana. They finally bust her, and they discover that she's been keeping the codes she uses to communicate with her handlers in Havana in her purse. Like, this is like, this would be like, you have all of your internet passwords on you at all times in your wallet. Like, because I don't, I don't know when I need to like access my super secret, you know, Swiss bank account. I'm going to keep it in my wallet with like my ATM card. This is like, who does this? No, this, she's an idiot. She, <laughs> you know, when they, they search her apartment, where do they find the radio? That, in a shoebox in her closet. This, <laughs> a shoebox in her closet. So, 
imagine you're breaking into the apartment and you're, you turn to your fellow, you know, apartment searcher and you say, well, where should we look first? And I would say, well, under the bed, maybe in a shoebox in the closet. Like, that's the second place you look, right? I mean, you'd think over the course of 10 years, she would devote even a modicum of time and attention to the question of where to hide the radio, since the radio is the smoking gun. But no, 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 she's in a Cole Haan box because nobody looks inside a Cole Haan box. So my point is like, it's not this mythology we have that the reason we get duped by, like Bernie Madoff, by the way, same thing. Bernie is not some, he is the author of the single greatest, biggest Ponzi scheme in history. And he never gets caught, by the way. Bernie never gets caught. He turns himself in, right? Bernie could still be out there. Bernie was not some evil genius. Bernie, the, he is a guy, like his, I forgot who it was, like his brother or somebody, who literally is like upstairs just manufacturing <laughs> fake trade things. And they're all lame. Like, he, if you look at them closely, he's like trading stocks that don't exist on like Christmas Day. I mean, it's like they do it. And his accountant is like an 85-year-old guy who runs a solo practice in a strip mall in Rockland County. Now, for those of you who don't know the New York area, there are a number of directions you can go from New York where you will run into sophisticated, well-educated people. Rockland County is not one of those directions. If, if you wanted to successfully <laughs> fool people to suggest you were not running a massive Ponzi scheme, you would not have your accountant be an 85-year-old guy running a solo practice in Rockland County. You, just, you would you would come up with a better cover story than that, right? He's not even thinking about that. He's just like, oh, I don't know. Let's have, you know, Stan in Rockland County. He can, let's call him our, because clearly he doesn't have an accountant. He can't have an accountant. He's not actually investing any money, right? So it's just all, it's just stories, making up and doing a bad job of it. Like these guys are lame. But he looks good and he convinces people. There's one person who doesn't convince. Yeah. Harry Markopoulos, yeah. who does not default to truth. Let's put it that way, Harry Markopoulos. His father had an Arthur Treacher's restaurant. He saw people steal from him all the time. He becomes an independent fraud investigator. Yeah. He like gift wraps several packages to the SEC saying, this Bernie Madoff numbers, they can't be possible. Yeah. Well, why don't they trust Harry Markopoulos? So Markopoulos is this lone guy who sees the truth of Bernie Madoff. And he writes a... I was kind of fat. I actually began my book rooting around in this case because I was so fascinated by it. So one, there's one guy on Wall Street who says from the beginning, Bernie Madoff is a total scam artist. And he tries for 10 years to convince the SEC of this and fails. So, and then remember when they, Madoff turns himself in, there's a famous hearing on Capitol Hill mm-hmm. and Markopoulos is the star of the hearing. And so I was really, really fascinated by well, what kind of person would be capable of seeing through Bernie's lies? And the answer is, he's wacko, Markopoulos. He sees through Bernie's lies because he thinks everyone's lying. He's just a paranoid, super suspicious, crazy person. He, he told me a story. At one point, he becomes convinced. He can't convince the SEC that Madoff is a liar. So he goes, he, he, learned, he decides the only person who can save him is the then Attorney General of New York, Elliot Spitzer. And so... Spitzer is speaking in Boston, where Markopoulos is based, at the Kennedy Library, and Markopoulos decides to go to the event and give Spitzer this 
report he's written proving Madoff is a fraud. But for complicated reasons having to do with I could never understand, Macopoulos does not want to reveal to Spitzer that he is the author of the report. So he puts on these latex gloves and he prints out the report because he doesn't want his fingerprints on the report. And then he puts it inside not one but two plain brown wrappers and then he puts on a heavy, bulky sweater and then two overcoats and goes to the speech and at the end he sidles up not to Spitzer but to one of the people who worked at the library and goes up to her and says get this to Spitzer <laughs> and gives it the envelope the two envelopes to the young woman now what are the odds that the young woman is going to pass on an envelope two envelopes that come from some dude in two overcoats <laughs> wearing latex gloves right in fact I'm pretty sure when she was given instructions about what her role was before the event started, that one of the things they told her was, if anyone approaches you wearing two overcoats and latex gloves with an envelope for Mr. Spitzer, don't give it to Mr. Spitzer. <laughs> no, put it in. Like, this is how he thinks, right? It's really hard for us to believe the truth when it comes from that kind of source. And that's part of our evolutionary equipment. We're drawn to warm and fuzzy. I'm Virginia Prescott, and you're listening to my conversation with Malcolm Gladwell at the First Center for the Arts. The live event was sponsored by Acapella Books and recorded by GPB for On Second Thought. Well, the thing is that we, we're not only bad at detecting the truth, but we think that we're good. This is... Well, we think we're good at everything. Yeah, we think, we're, think good. we're good at everything. That's pretty that's the, basic. The illusion of asymmetric insight, this idea that we can somehow see into the hearts of other people. And there's yeah. a judge, you call him Judge Solomon, uh, in his Brooklyn courtroom. He is there to assess whether or not people who are there for bail hearings are going to go on and commit more crimes. Mm. He is bested by a computer, right, statistically on whether he... So is AI better than figuring out how humans behave than... Than we are. Than well, somebody who says, I need to look somebody in the eye and know if they're telling me yeah. the truth. People, it's not that AI is great, it's that we're bad. It's an important distinction. So, one strand of AI argument is, you know, uh, as good as human beings are, AI is even better. That's, no, no, no. We're terrible, and it happens to be, AI happens to be slightly better than terrible. That's, I think, the more appropriate... But I, I don't believe, I've never believed this argument that AI displaces millions of workers. I don't know. I sort of feel like, because every time people, I read this thing, I forget where, by someone who was talking about autonomous vehicles. Mm -hmm. Pointed out, there's all kinds of problems with autonomous, but this person, whoever it was, and I'm sorry, I forget their name, but um, made this one, just, just this wonderful observation, which was, so, now, when you're driving down the street, pedestrians walk along the sidewalk and generally cross the street only at crosswalks or at the light. Not always, but generally. Why do they do that? Because it's dangerous to cross, to jaywalk, and it's dangerous to jaywalk because if you're a pedestrian, you don't know whether the driver will see you or whether the, if the driver sees you, whether they will also break. There's some fear, right? Mm -hmm. you, don't, you can't be sure the driver is going to behave appropriately, so you that limits jaywalking. So 
when I was coming here along the busy streets of Atlanta, no one jaywalked, right? The entire time I, I drove. Okay. If every car is autonomous and has an AI system which perfectly perceives the world around it and reacts appropriately and logically to every perceived obstacle threat, you'll always jaywalk. <laughs> Everyone's going to jaywalk. In fact, why wouldn't you just walk down like the middle of the freeway because <laughs> every car will stop for you? It's, the car is smarter than drivers and they will not run you down. So you've removed all of deterrence from being a pedestrian. So, I mean, I'm a runner. I'm going I'm to like... Just, I mean, in the year 2040, I'm just going to start running randomly across, and every autonomous vehicle will immediately come to a halt. Now, does, has anyone seriously thought about, like, what this does to traffic in a city like Atlanta? We have a question here. How do we solve Atlanta traffic, Malcolm Gladwell? Well, <laughs> it ain't going to be autonomous cars. Certainly not with autonomous vehicles. This is a classic. This is my big problem with a lot of tech solutions. They're always, the tech guys are always solving the wrong problem, right? If you asked us, what is the single biggest problem with cars? We would all say traffic. So they're like, well, no, no, we can't. We're not going to deal with traffic. Let's, let's solve this other problem, which is the problem of like how you don't actually want to drive your car. And then, so you're like, but wait, if, I'm not driving my car and I'm just sitting in the back watching movies, then doesn't that make traffic worse, not better? And they're like, well, yeah. Because it does make traffic a lot worse, right? Like you, you don't care if you can do your work. Like if you make your office the back of your car, so what if it takes two hours to get to work? You don't care anymore. So you just like go whenever. And then you don't park your car anymore. You just send your car to go around and around. Why would you just have the car go around and around the block for the five hours you're at work, right? So... Now, all of a sudden, no one's paying for parking. They're just sending their cars autonomously. So now, and then you say, well, traffic, if everyone does that, they grind to a halt. But like, well, I don't care. I'm at work. I'm not in my car. So why do I care whether my car is in traffic? Like, this is all, there's just so many problems. Like, they're so fixated, as they always are, on the wrong problem. Malcolm Gladwell there, not quite solving Atlanta's terminal traffic problems, but I think worth the ride. We're going to take a short break and talk about the implications of trusting others in the post-Me Too era, why Brian Williams owes him, and his proportionate analysis of why so many people dislike him. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more of Malcolm Gladwell, recorded live in Atlanta. This is On Second Thought. Oh, no, no, the stranger. 